Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. I am back from the first ever History of Byzantium tour to Istanbul, and it was amazing. It was so much fun showing listeners around all the Byzantine sites that remain. I met some wonderful people and a guy named Laurent. There you go, I said it. Seriously though, if you've ever thought about visiting Istanbul, I think you will love the tour. Send me an email if you want to be first in line when dates for 2020 come through, thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com. Today, we have another Backer Rewards episode. Listener ABC asked what happened in the city of Rome during late antiquity? How did things develop as the empire slowly receded in importance in the city's mind? To answer that question, I turned to a man who talks about Rome every week, Steve Guerra from the History of the Papacy podcast. Steve will take you through developments in the city from the height of Antonine Rome to the post-Justinian world of Gregory the Great. Huge thanks to Steve for generously helping me out, and needless to say, if you would like to learn more about the papacy and the city of Rome, then check out the History of the Papacy podcast. I will be back soon with more narrative episodes. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Steve Guerra, and I host a podcast called the History of the Papacy podcast. I talk about the background, history, and context of the popes of Rome and Christian Church. Today I have a little episode on what happened to the city of Rome during the period of late antiquity leading into the Middle Ages. These terms like late antiquity, Middle Ages, Dark Ages, and the like get thrown around and each has varying degrees of accuracy and usefulness. The story of the fall and the rise of the city of Rome falls across these different ages of history. The city of Rome reached its height of power and population during the 2nd and 3rd centuries of the Common Era. Estimates vary, but most scholars place the population of the city of Rome at its height in the neighborhood of 1 million inhabitants. Some scholars make an estimate of a bit less than 1 million on the low end and possibly as high as 2 million on the high end. For our purposes today, I think we can be pretty comfortable with the more commonly held number of 1 million residents. Now, there's even a lot of debate on what you might call the statistical area included in these numbers. We'll be safe again and say the population for the most part lived inside of the Severan and Aurelian walls, 
but at least a portion of the population lived outside of that area, including the nearby Vatican Hill and the nearby Trastevere areas, both of which are on the opposite side of the Tiber from the classical ancient Roman city. In broad strokes, about half of the million people lived on what is called the Grain Dole, or the Anona. These were urban poor whose entire food needs were met by the government through free rations of bread and other commodities. These people, for the most part, did not engage in trade or production. Another quarter to a third of the population were slaves who were dependent on their owners for their daily sustenance. There was a population of free laborers, craftsmen, and etc. as well. They were generally organized into what we might call guilds, but were uh, to them called corporations or collegia. They did not operate in the way that we would envision corporations. There really isn't a precise analogy to our modern times. They definitely were not capitalists by our conception, but they weren't socialist either. There was a reciprocal relationship between state and private resources in general in the economy. The state and private resources got kind of blended together. The rest of the population was made up of various ranks of nobility from the lesser nobility to the high-ranking senators and then all the way up to the emperor. It was a complicated social ranking system and governmental system which slowly evolved over time. Rome was not just a big city, it was the center of the world. The city may have had tremendous poverty, as we said, over half of the population subsisted completely on food provided by the city government or wealthy benefactors, and a good percent on top of that were slaves. For all of that, though, Roman was the city on the hill. It was the imperial capital and had a reputation of greatness that other cities, cities that had longer histories and pedigrees, just couldn't stand up to. Rome was the city, and this is the peak and where the decline begins. Now, what were the reasons for the decline, you might ask? Well, the 3rd century was a very difficult time for the Roman Empire, You've got the Gothic invasions and the Germanic invasions, these same groups who came along again in the next few hundred years. They'd keep coming and coming. You had really devastating civil wars. In fact, the empire split into different parts, the Gallic Empire and the Palmyrene Empire, along with the main empire. So there's a lot going on there. The empire was restored into one piece by the Emperor Aurelian in the mid-270s, and that settled the empire and brought it back together. But trouble was just over the horizon, or just over the border. Rome was still very important symbolically at this point, but other cities in the west and cities in the east became much more important strategically. Emperors spent less and less time over the decades in the imperial city. Let's take a quick look at Rome as a city, not as an empire anymore, but the city of Rome. This is the story of a city and why cities are important and why do they grow and decline over time. Geography is really important. Cities can thrive because they have a great location. Location can be to near a sea route and trade routes, 
or roads and other networks, overland networks, near important natural resources like mines, land, fishing, grounds, or it can be a defensible location. A combination of all of these is what makes a city important. Rome had some location advantages, but other serious disadvantages that will play in as we look at the story over the next couple of hundred years of Roman history. In the late 200s onward, Rome was really far removed from the border and where the real constant warfare was going on. The, particularly the northern European border and the Persian border. The local countryside of central Italy and southern Italy could not support the food needs of a city with a population of one million people. The agricultural systems of that day and the productivity of the land of Lazio, Latium as it was called, and the nearby countryside just did not have the capacity for such an enormous city. So where did the food come from? It was brought in from northern Africa, and really the entire sweep of northern Africa from the Carthage area and what we might now call the Maghreb to Egypt. The people in this time, especially the the on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, their uh, diet was heavily grain-based. It was up to 75% bread. Bakeries were run either by the government or one of these private collegia trade uh, guild type situations. Many bakers were slaves, and there was always a serious manpower shortage of slave baker labor. Certain provinces, like Sardinia, for example, were required to send a specific number of bakery slaves to Rome each year. The criminal punishment for certain crimes was forced labor, even a lifelong forced labor in a bakery. So imagine that. There's no... um, Quitting your job as a lawyer to become a baker there unless you had committed some sort of crime. Overall, the city of Rome made very few manufactured goods. It relied very heavily on imports from North Africa, surrounding countryside of Italy, and then northern Italy and above, and the area beyond the Alps. Meat, oil, and wine, for example, were mostly sourced from the Italian peninsula. Rome had a tenuous water supply. I guess really most cities in the modern day do have a tenuous water supply. They need to get water, enough water, especially big mega cities like, say, London or New York City or something. They have to get water from quite a ways away, and that was the same for Rome. The city was fed by 13 aqueducts, which was a sophisticated plumbing system to bring quantities of water from relatively far away to the city. And the source of the water for these aqueducts could, in many cases, be many kilometers, miles, Roman miles, whatever unit you choose away from the city. A city of several thousand to over one million today requires an incredible amount of water and daily maintenance to that system of water infrastructure. Urban and civilized infrastructure is very expensive and it's fragile. It really needs constant upkeep. 
just a short time without normal maintenance can shut down the down the system entirely. The city of Rome's food and water infrastructure was quite fragile as well. It relied on the relatively peaceful stability that enjoyed over the several hundred years prior to the two and three hundreds A.D. They were shipping things over water, over land, and that really required that there would be no pirates, there would no be no brigands, and that to anything that might disrupt that flow of commerce and it got even more sophisticated than that to even graft and leakage as you might say that that was even strictly controlled after that crisis of the third century the early to mid 300s area around rome and the mediterranean world generally saw an era of relative peace it wasn't maybe as great as it was before the crisis of the mid-century but it wasn't too bad either But that stability and peace was not to last much longer. Rome was a city that survived and thrived because it was the center of a complicated political and governmental apparatus. There was a serious political decline. As we said earlier, the city of Rome began its decline in the early 300s. The city just wasn't strategically important anymore. We mentioned these other cities that were closer to the action, so to speak, of where things were really happening. But there was also a new Rome that was created. In 325, Constantine, the emperor, made a grand new capital of the Roman Empire. The former city of Byzantium was remade into Constantinople, the new Rome. The new Rome tried to eclipse the old Rome in every way possible. It even had seven hills. Treasure and art were taken from old Rome to give the new Rome a uh, jump start on life. Even old Roman noble families were highly encouraged to move to Constantinople. Constantine's idea for a new kind of empire had a needed to have a sparkly new capital, and that new capital took some of the air out of the old capital. Then, like we said, cities like Ravenna, Milan, Trier, they were closer immediately to the problems that the, uh, the Roman Empire was having. The, they were seeing action, by which I mean there was places where the incursions of the various barbarian groups were coming right across the border, the Franks, the Alemanni, the Heruli, Goths, Saxons, they were all attacking the borders of the empire, especially in the west. And then don't forget about the Huns. The big battle of Adrianople in 378 marked a major milestone for the Roman Empire. A Roman Empire in the east was completely destroyed by a Gothic army. The Goths, who were on the other side of the border, were now inside of the border, And these Goths had been just continually getting pushed by other groups. So it was a lot of things going on north of this border. And as groups like the Huns kept pushing the Goths, they kept getting pushed into the empire to find some respite. All of these things started in the east but moved west. Traditionally, the west was much poorer and much less urbanized than the east. Rome was a huge city that was on par and surpassed any of the big ancient grand cities of the east like Alexandria or Antioch. But 
Rome was just about it in the Western Empire. Other sizable locations in the West, like Trier, Ravenna, Carthage, Arles, a few others, were pretty big cities, but they were nothing compared to the cities in the East. Emperor Theodosius, he brought the eastern and western parts of the empire together for the last time, but he was like he was the last to do so. The empire was split permanently into after his reign in the late 300s. As the different barbarian groups pushed into the empire, the east had many more resources to use to defend themselves and keep trade going in some sort of normalcy. They had what you might call elasticity to keep things normal to some degree. The West was not in the same position. Their system was a lot more fragile. The Western Empire just didn't have the trade, tax, or military base to repel the Goths and the other Germanic groups for very long without causing a lot of destruction. Throughout the 400s, more and more portions of the Western Empire were being peeled off by the various Germanic groups. In 410, the city of Rome itself was sacked. Sacks do not do a great job for stability, which is the key element of urbanism. The military and the civil government couldn't do much of anything to stop the sack or even mitigate it. It fell to the church to try and minimize the damage done by the Goths. As the power and authority of the civil government of the Roman Empire collapsed, the church was left as the only institution with any clout or any resources to pick up the pieces. But hold on to that. We'll talk more about that shortly. The city of Rome just continued to collapse. It it continued to decline. The big sack didn't help things much, and the population of the city contracted. The 400s brought more wars, invasions, and stability. The housing style started to change inside of the city, from the large apartment block style insulae to domus or domi uh, houses, just standalone houses. And these were the homes of one family. The, uh, it could go anywhere from a huge mansion to a small hovel, but we're seeing that there's a change in the urban infrastructure. Bathing institutions or bathhouses were being shut down. Again, they required a lot of money and a lot of resources to keep them maintained so they could operate. Of the big, of the big four that service the city, only one was still in use by the 400s. The city of a million people had to shrink in services to meet the needs of a smaller population. And that's not as easy as it sounds. Contraction of a a city is generally more of a problem for planners than expansion. In recent years, cities have had to and municipalities have had to deal with this issue. Even as urbanism in general has increased throughout the world in the modern era. 476 is always used as the date of the official collapse of the Roman Empire. More accurately, the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West. And even a little bit more accurately, or at this point more pedantically, and if we dig down a little more accurately... This is really the transfer of power from the Roman Empire to the Germanic Ostrogothic successor state, as well as other successor states. 
the Ostrogoths, they made their capital in Ravenna. That didn't mean that Rome was not an important place, but it was less so. The Ostrogoths continued to run their kingdom, which was most of modern-day Italy, almost the exact same way that the late Romans had. The Ostrogoths even used most of the same people, the educated, Latin-speaking, indigenous class. The 5th and the 6th centuries brought on more changes in civic organization. Older models were adapted to the Christian organization of the city of Rome. Uh, The city was divided into seven diaconal regions, as one example, that were divided in such a way that they could deliver the needs of the urban poor that were still in the city. The city of Rome was more strongly allied to the Eastern Roman Byzantine Empire, but there were still factions which in the city supported the Ostrogoths. Factionalism is a big part of Roman politics and would really be that way for well over a millennia after this time period and could even be said to this day. Shake up things is the Gothic Wars. These took place in the mid-500s, and the mid-500s were a really bad time for for central Italy. The Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, attacked into Italy, and so this was a knock-em-out, drag-em-out fight that went this was a knock-em-out, drag-em-out fight that just scoured the entire peninsula. The invasion was devastating for the economy and the population all throughout Italy, but Rome was especially hard hit. I mean, many people died in the war through the usual starvation and disease. This time period also coincided with the climactic change to much colder temperatures, which hurt agriculture. And all this feedback loop of less crops leads to starvation, which leads to disease, which leads to less people to grow crops, etc., etc. It just all meant more and more people died. The term Dark Ages is not widely used anymore, and it really isn't useful in its broad meaning. But for someone living in the mid to late 500s in the central Italian peninsula, life would have looked incredibly bleak. I mean, if you consider somebody who lived in Rome in the not-too-distant past, in the time of, say, one's grandparents, things weren't too bad. Times were a little rough, but maybe in their grandparents' times, that was, you're getting into the height of Rome. In the mid-500s, things were about as dark as you could possibly imagine. Just in the city of Rome alone, during the Gothic Wars, in about 20 years, the city changed hands between the Byzantines and the Goths five times. These were full-blown military operations, again, not a healthy environment for a city to thrive in. It's at this point in the mid-500s that the population of the city of Rome bottomed out at about 30,000 people. Most of the people lived in the western area of the city around an elbow in the Tiber within the traditional boundaries of the city of Rome and then just outside the boundaries in two areas on the other side, particularly in the Vatican Hill area. Places to the east, like the Forum and the Colosseum, were overgrown or used for agricultural and livestock purposes. For example, the Forum was called the field, the cow field. 
Another part was called the goat field. These are parts of the city that were thriving a few hundred years ago. Now they've been entirely given over to agriculture. Eleven of the 13 aqueducts that had served the city were completely out of commission. This is the decline of the city of Rome. The average population of the city of Rome fell approximately 5% per 10 years throughout the 200s to the 500s. Interestingly, that's about the rate of decline of several major United States Rust Belt cities during the 1970s to 1990s. Not to make this too U.S.-centric, but a lot of cities throughout the the developed world experienced similar post-industrial population decline. But just for example, a city like New York City, Cleveland, my own hometown of Buffalo, New York, experienced this rate of decline of 5% per 10 years from starting in the early 1900s until about the 1990s where it flattened out. Cities like London experienced this sort of decline as well. Just in this short period of time in post-industrial modern West, you can see the devastation that this population decline wrought in these cities like Philadelphia that are finally seeing a renaissance now, but they were on very hard times. And this was just a few decades, not hundreds of years. The social and economic impact was huge. We had ghost town downtowns, blighted and abandoned neighborhoods. Now imagine what, say, London or New York City or any other place you can imagine would look like after 300 years of steady population decline. Rome in 550 would be a good place to get a good image of what can happen to a great city that goes into severe decline. We've seen the decline, but there was also a rise in this situation. As the civil and secular power of the city of Rome collapsed, the seeds of the eventual rebirth of the city were being sown. This is the rise of Christianity. The late 500s was the low point for the city of Rome, and it was really the point where the city started to finally climb back with the help of Pope Gregory the Great. But let's go back to the beginning and see how the church grew within the empire and the city of Rome. And this trajectory as the city is declining, Christianity's increasing, and how those two factors are going to fit together. Now, as I've said before, our main purpose today is to look at the city of Rome during the period of late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. But we really should just take at least a cursory look at how Christianity developed in the Roman Empire. I'm not going to spend too, too much time on this. There are podcasts you can listen to that cover the ins and outs of the development of Christianity and its roots in Second Temple Judaism. Mine is one, for example, but there's many other good ones, too. We can go all the way back to the 30s in the Common Era, C-E-A-D, whatever you prefer, and that's the time most scholars agree that Jesus of Nazareth operated. This proto-Jesus movement was an incredibly small blip in a small corner of the Roman Empire. The Jesus movement was a part of a bigger movement called Second Temple Judaism, Many, many, many Jews lived in the Roman province of Palestine and its environs, but many Jews also lived all throughout the Roman Empire, east and west. 
the earliest Christianity spread through a number of routes, but the primary way it spread through the empire was through the various Jewish communities that existed in the big cities throughout the empire. Early Christianity just also happened to make inroads into communities of Gentiles through a group called the God-fearers. And these were Gentiles who respected Judaism, but for one reason or another just didn't become Jews. And there's a lot of reasons for that that really aren't important but are fascinating, that if you're something you're interested in, there's a lot of resources on them. But this actually gets us back to the city of Rome. Christianity in the city of Rome was interesting in the beginning. The history of Christianity in Rome, the city, begins not too much longer after Christianity spread out of the eastern Mediterranean, specifically the Levant. Now, as I said, there was a fairly significant population of diaspora Jews living in Rome during the first century CE. With, without getting into the weeds too much, there was a great diversity of Judaism in this, what they call the late Second Temple period. There were Jews living in the Levant who strictly followed the Jewish laws, spoke Aramaic, and had their own distinct culture, the Jewish law being the laws of the Tanakh, such as kosher laws. But there were also Jews who were highly Hellenized, spoke exclusively Greek, and had their own views on how to practice Judaism. There was a pretty wide spectrum of belief. And really, there was everything in between this completely Hellenized version of Judaism to strict Judaism of the Middle East. These were the views that were floating around that would heavily influence early Christianity. The Christianity and modern rabbinical Judaism had a menu of options they picked through to make their own religion today. And that's why it's really more accurate to say that modern rabbinical Judaism and Christianity are more cousin religions instead of a sister-daughter relationship. What all this means for our story today is that it was relatively easy for the earliest version of Christianity to go to the city of Rome and become established and accepted by the Jewish residents who were already there. There's many great stories about the early history of Christianity in the city of Rome. Most important for us today is that two of the biggest names in Christianity settled in Rome and were martyred there. Peter and Paul of Saints Peter and Paul fame. Like I said, so many great stories to share of them. Most of them are apocryphal. And there's a great deal of scholarship about the historicity of Peter and Paul in Rome. We really don't need to go on a tangent about that, though, right now, or today, really, for that matter. We can just say that Christians believe that Peter and Paul established a community in Rome. Rome had a really special place in Christianity, having been founded by not one, but two of their top-tier apostles. They called that double apostolicity, being founded by two apostles. During the next two centuries or so, the bishops of Rome made claims of an executive power throughout the whole church in all of the world, basically, but for our points, in the entire Roman Empire, not just the city of Rome. In many ways, this was accepted by Christians in other places, but not entirely. 
Now, where things really get interesting is in 312 AD. This is when an important battle called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge happened in the city of Rome. Constantine, one of the Tetrarchs, won a major battle to secure his place as the leader of the western part of the Roman Empire. After that battle, though, there's there's a big mention of how Constantine had a conversion event that made him become Christian before this battle of the Milvian Bridge, but there's no mention whatsoever of Constantine visiting with the local Christians after the battle, like saying, hey man, I just became a Christian, and let me meet with the big names of Christianity here. Let me go to one of their house churches. Nothing, not a single word. We move on from that. Constantine makes his Edict of Milan, which gives pretty much blanket religious freedom in the empire. This is at about the time of a pope named Pope Sylvester. It's really difficult to sift through what is true about Sylvester and what's outright lies. Most of his most of his biography is based on something called the Forgeries of Symmachus, written about 200 years later to secure the claims of the power of Pope Symmachus, who was operating in a much different climate than Sylvester was. One of the things Symmachus said was that Constantine donated a ton of land and powers to the Pope, civil and secular powers to the Pope, in the early 300s. Now, as I said, this is a complete forgery, utter forgery from the 500s. It said Constantine gave Pope Sylvester all these all these types of authority over almost anything you could name, especially, like I said, huge tracts of land. It also said that Constantine was baptized by Sylvester, and that's just not true at all either. Constantine was baptized on his deathbed in the Bosphorus near Constantinople by the Bishop of Constantinople. The fact is Constantine actually did grant Sylvester and the Church of Rome land in the form of the some of the major basilicas like the Lateran Cathedral and some other cities along with just a huge amount of money and wealthy items like gold, plate, bowls, expensive vestments, etc. He did shower them with a lot of things like that, but just not anywhere to the degree that Symmachus and his forgeries made it out. But that these uh, Symmachian forgeries really set the stage and it gave the popes of the later Middle Ages something to grab onto and something to use in the power struggles that would go on in central Italy and even beyond. We skipped ahead a bit with the forgeries of Symmachus, but let's back up to the post-Sylvester days in the 300s. The position of pope steadily increased in powers during these years. There were many controversies in the church during the 4th century. The church and religious controversies ran parallel with the disagreements that the East and the West were having politically, along with these constant incursions of barbarians. It's just another complicating factor. The relationships between West and East were progressively becoming more and more strained, and that's religiously and politically and militarily. 
Most of the major churches in the city of Rome were built during this period of the 300s and then into the early 400s. The church building had hit a period of saturation. Barbarian invasions also slowed down new church building as less resources were available for new construction. Pagan and secular buildings were repurposed for churches, and that was one of the ways that churches grew. Paganism was fading by this point, but it had not entirely disappeared. For the most part, pagans slowly adopted Christianity, as Christianity was the prestige religion, and there were economic, social, and cultural benefits to conversion. A very similar this is a very similar process to how Christianity spread before this time period and to a degree afterwards. And it's really a way that religions often spread. It's it slowly catches steam and as it's adopted by higher echelons of the population socio and economically, it becomes more and more popular and then snowballs from there. You can't really forget either that even in the worst of times, churches were still being built and really completely further embellished. Popes like Damasus in the later part of the 4th century worked to expand papal power over the ecclesiastical structure of the church, both in the East and the West. Damasus was the patron of the one of the most famous church writers of all time, Jerome. And Jerome was from the Balkans, like kind of the middle of nowhere of the Balkans. But he absolutely was in love with Rome. And he loved the idea of Rome as a city, this, as the center of the world, and that Rome as the holy city, the new Jerusalem. In Christian and Jewish religion, Jerusalem was seen as the center of the world, both literally, meaning geographically, and the idea of that Jerusalem was a religious and geographically center of the world would hold on well into the Renaissance. As Jerusalem was the spiritual center of the world, people had a lot of reason to try and make Rome this new center, especially of Christianity. Christianity was still, in a way, relatively light on the ground in Rome during the later part of the 4th century. It had, hadn't made completely strong inroads into the Roman aristocracy, particularly among the males, the paterfamiliuses of the family. But Christianity was becoming popular amongst the women of the aristocracy, the materfamiliuses, and they were really one of the driving factors of Christianizing the city. By the time Theodosius became the emperor in the 300s, Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire. Emperors by this point, though, rarely even visited Rome, let alone even thought about living there. The popes were the ones who became more and more important in not only religious life, but also in the running of the basics of the civil government. This gets us into the 5th century, the 400s, and in 410 there was a disaster. Rome was put under siege and then sacked by the Goths. The civil government could do nothing to stop it. 
Pope Innocent was able to negotiate terms where not too much wanton destruction and rape occurred, as was the usual modus operandi associated with sex in the ancient world. The Goths really weren't terribly interested in a utter sack of Rome. And for the most part, they were Christian, maybe not the same exact brand of Christian as the popes and the people of Rome, but they still highly respected Rome as a Christian city. In the mid-400s, there was a vandal sack of Rome, and there was a threat of invasion of Italy by Attila the Hun. Leo the Great, the Pope of Rome, was able to negotiate and limit the violence and destruction of the Vandals. He was also able to convince Attila, and there's many great stories about Leo the Great and Attila, but the big point there is that with some influence by Leo the Great, Attila did not go into central Italy and do his usual sacking and looting routine that he had done through Gaul. So the popes of Rome worked to expand this their ecclesiastical power through Italy, Gaul, and the rest of Western Europe, but the popes were also the ones who were representing Roman authority and the interest of the Roman people in secular affairs. Really, all throughout Western Europe, the bishops were the only ones left who could do anything to help the average Roman. They were the only ones who had these administrative tools that they could use to shore up any sense of, of stability or normalcy in the Western Empire. This really helped in the West of the idea that there is one common language and a common faith, a common language of Latin and a common faith of Western Latin Roman Catholic Christianity. We look at this date of 476 when the Western Roman officially fell. The popes continued to solidify their powers and even tried to accumulate more after that. The bishops of other powerful sees wanted more independence over their areas, but the popes always fought against this. During this time period, the popes of Rome were also involved in some different theological controversies where they were in conflict with the Byzantine Christians in Constantinople. Again, the Rome tried to be fiercely independent, both secularly and religiously, from the Ostrogoths in Ravenna and the Roman emperors in Constantinople. This finally gets us to this end point where we talked about the nadir of the city and population and power, but the time where it's starting to swoop back up again and get on an upward trajectory. And that's in the end of the 500s with Pope Gregory the Great. Gregory the Great's life is, and background is really a model of what Rome looked like in the late antiquity. He was a member of a high-ranking patrician family called the Anikii family. And this family had roots going all way back in almost potentially to the Republican period. Other big Roman families with roots going back to that um, early empire, late Republic, were the Achillii, the Galbriones, the Caioni. All of these families kind of melded into each other by intermarriage and they had social and business relations. 
these families really don't last a too much longer after this time period. New families would come in through the the course of time that would change the power outlook of the city of Rome's families like the Colonna and the Orsini, but they're really they have very tenuous links to these families. But anyways, with Gregory, he was from a very Christianized family. He had many priests, saints, and even popes in his ancestry. He was raised with the very best education possible at Rome at that time. But I stress, at that time. He doesn't seem to have been schooled in Greek or received the same quality or type of education a Roman patrician a century or two previously would have received. He did travel to Constantinople as a papal representative, and he didn't even speak Greek. Gregory felt very disconnected with the Greek and Greekness and Hellenism of the Constantinopolitan culture. He just did not really approve of the, of the whole Greek language, Greek culture, or any of that. There was really a hardening of positions of what how Romans felt about Greeks, and it wasn't positive. Gregory, at this whole time, he just wanted to go back to Rome, and he finally did get the chance to go back to Rome, and he became Pope. Gregory reformed many of the aspects of the ecclesiastical administration of the See of Rome and the City of Rome. By this point, the church and the city were completely fused together. The Pope was, in effect, the leader of the City of Rome. The papacy of Gregory is seen as the city of Rome hitting rock bottom after the disasters of the last nearly 300 years. Just to quickly recap, the sack of Rome, the fall of the Roman Empire, the Ostrogothic kingdom taking over, the Gothic-Byzantine wars, terrible climactic shifts, disease, famine... Rome and Italy were devastated. It would take a long time for the city to crawl out of this trough, but eventually it did. The next nearly thousand years of history has its building blocks in a Rome and a Roman papacy. They're the same idea at this point. Even for all this, the last big secular building project in the city, the tower, a tower built in the honor of the Byzantine Emperor Phocas, would be built in 608 after Gregory and all of the all of this decline there was still some secular building this is just a huge story and believe it or not i've just touched on a small piece of it historians have studied this whole story for centuries edward gibbon the famous historian enlightenment historian he saw rome in a rise decline and fall that perspective that he made in all the way back in the 1700s still highly influences how we see Rome today. Gibbon did not like Christianity, and he especially did not like Roman Catholic version of Christianity. Gibbon attributed much of the fall of the Roman Empire to the empire adopting Christianity. We can see through Christianity's influence in the city of Rome started long before the decline of the Roman Empire. And the parts of the, I mean, if you want to throw a uh, contra fact, the parts of the Roman Empire that existed and thrived long after the fall of the Western Roman Empire were actually way more Christianized than the Western Empire. 
it's just the fact that Christianity was not as it was not a one to one correspondence of, of rise and fall. They were two different phenomena that were going on at a similar time, not even at the exact same time. The decline of the city of Rome was really the result of economic, military, and demographic reasons that were basically shaping this whole section of the Eurasian and North African continents. Rome started to rise after the 600s as a Christian city under the leadership of the Pope. The Pope and Rome became inextricably linked through the rest of the Middle Ages. You can't say anything about Central Italy or Roman city politics without mentioning the Popes in some way. This is what made Rome a player again in the politics of Western Europe and beyond. There's a very good chance that if Rome didn't adopt this identity through the popes as the center of Christianity, that Rome could have potentially just faded out and just been a footnote in history. The city of Rome in Western Europe went through a very difficult time, but Rome came out of this difficult time as a different place, with different institutions, but with a connection to the glories of the past. This is an incredibly interesting story and shows how many different threads come together in just complicated and fascinating ways. I really want to thank Robin Pearson so much for asking me to do this episode on what happened to the city of Rome during late antiquity in the Middle Ages. I'm a huge fan of Robin's podcast, and I hope that this episode can at least hold up a tiny candle to the wonderful work and the wonderful story that Robin does. I just want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any feedback, I'd love to hear. And this is always my idea for podcasting is always a conversation starter. This is not the final word on anything. So I'd love to hear your feedback. And thanks again to you for listening and for Robin for inviting me on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.